You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Those who recognize the name Michel Foucault might think of him as the strange heir to the legacies of Marx and Nietzsche, a thinker who preferred the idiosyncratic genealogy to the grand systematic history, and a writer whose narration of power relations in realms as diverse as the prison, the home, and the hospital gave the humanities an entirely new set of questions to pursue in the texts and the artifacts of the human record. Dr. Stephen G. Ogden, in his recent book, The Church, Authority, and Foucault, from Rutledge, brings that critical vocabulary to bear on the life of the church, and specifically on the power dynamics that make a bishop a bishop and a layperson a layperson. Christian Humanist Profiles is pleased to welcome Dr. Ogden on the show to discuss the book. Thank you for coming on the show. My pleasure, Nathan. Nice to be here. You note early in this book that Michel Foucault's Catholic background persists in certain tendencies of thought, even if he doesn't outright confess as a Catholic. So in your mind, are those vestiges of Christianity what makes him helpful for thinking about ecclesiology, or is something else about his work especially important for contemporary Christians? Look, I think think that's an important issue. Uh, Generally, Foucault has not been given a lot of airtime in Christian circles or Christian theology. He's often been dismissed uh, glibly as being nihilist. But uh, his overall view in terms of uh, important values like uh, freedom and human dignity, I think in many ways reflect the best of uh, Catholic social teaching. Um, He was brought up uh, in some ways uh, in a traditional French Catholic home, uh, went to church regularly with his grandmother. And obviously he's not a practicing Christian, but there's a a kind of sympathy to uh, the aspirations of the uh, Catholic Church, which he brings then into face with, the, like you mentioned in your introduction, he brings a whole new set of questions. And it's something about the new set of questions he brings with this kind of uh, strange mix of, uh, of a dispassionate attitude to the church, but also some kind of uh, sympathy that I think is very useful. Very good. I, I, as you think of his biography, I mean... Uh, I'm asking you because I genuinely don't know. I mean, when did he depart from his Catholic roots? I mean, when did he start to become the Foucault that most of us heard about in grad school? Sure. I'm not not sure if I can uh, put a date to that. I mean, his um, grandmother took him to church, a beautiful little church, Saint-Pochere, with his siblings for a long time. And, you know, in some ways it was part of his uh, DNA, even if his parents specifically weren't practicing uh, Catholic. And uh, just towards the end of his life, there was an interview where he, he quite outrightly said, look, I'm, I'm not ashamed of my Catholic background. So, you know, we can't present him as a card-carrying Christian, but he, he spends a lot of time uh, reflecting upon the history of the church, its subtleties, and he knows aspects of the church uh, very well. And I think particularly questions about human dignity and human freedom are uppermost in his thinking. I mean, his own, in his own pro- private life, he was engaged with everything from, you know, supporting workers with solidarity in uh, Poland in the early 80s uh, to prison reform in France in the 70s. So there's something about his own kind of DNA that reflects, as I said before, the best of Catholic uh, social teaching. 
But on the other hand, um, you know, he does apply very much so a blowtorch uh, to the institutional church and issues of power, and particularly what you mentioned before about the power dynamics of the church. I think his work is um, illuminating. Mm-hmm. Very good. Well, one of the phrases that wends its way through this book is sovereign power. So where does that mm. phrase find its place in the thought of Foucault, and what relation does it bear to the life of the church? Probably two uh, dimensions. Uh, Foucault, in a sense, does a study of, of how power morphs over the centuries, and uh, classically people refer to, he, he, you know, he's, he looks at the sovereign phase of power, then power in disciplinary terms, and then the, the modern or biopolitical understanding of power. But Foucault is very quick to point out that at one level, even in the 21st century, all those forms of power can surface. And within the life of the church, whether it's in the more traditional or Catholic traditions like um, Anglican, I think you'd say Episcopal, uh, Catholic or Orthodox, or in congregational churches, there are power dynamics. And there's something about power that, that finds its locus in leadership. And often that power, um, uh, in more perhaps uh, popular terms, takes on authoritarian uh, patterns. And that's the kind of power that Foucault would see as sovereign power, exercising power by fiat or by edict. And uh, curiously, it seems to happen across the traditions. I mean, I can speak from experience from the Anglican tradition in Australia, but there's been some interesting studies in the United States on Baptist churches and United Methodist churches. So the the same tendencies towards authoritarian uh, traits or practices emerge in a range of churches, which I would describe as uh, exercises in sovereign power. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, the sovereign in sovereign power doesn't specifically refer then to you know, the historical link between the English crown and the Anglican church then? Well, a wonderful it does, you know, as a footnote, certainly in my book, I mean, the issues you see in the, uh, in the modern formation of the Anglican church and the tension between Henry VIII and the Pope, uh, they're ultimately questions about the locus of authority. And, and wherever authority sits, that, in a sense, becomes the base of power and that's an age-old uh, struggle. So if it's not sovereign and pope, it can be it can be the Bible teacher and the and the parishioner or the congregational um, member. Uh, there are certain dynamics which people like you mentioned Nietzsche and Hegel talked about the the master-slave dynamic, and uh, that seems to recur time and time again uh, within the life of the church. It's not exclusive to the church. I mean. I think um, these days universities and hospitals also show similar uh, patterns of uh, power dynamics. The complicating factor in the church is that it's often done under the veneer of um, obedience. It's the it's it's the cult of obedience and deference, which in some ways makes sovereign power more sinister. I think in some ways in the life of the church because it's concealed. All right. Well, another phrase that I want to set up so our listeners, you know, when they hear it as we roll along, they'll know what it means, uh, is epistemological hubris. So I, I know hubris from my Athenian tragedies and Aristotle's, you know, examination of them. 
Uh, what is epistemological hubris in particular? Well, uh, that's a key issue in the book, really, because um, at one level, there, there have been some studies, of course, on the issue of power and the church. But I think that the uh, genius of Foucault is to see this intimate or integral link between power and knowledge. Now, he doesn't actually, he doesn't actually resolve the nature of that link, but asserts, and I think rightly, that somehow they are bound together. And in the church, the life of the church, uh, whether it's the, uh, the bishop or the president or the superintendent uh, or moderator of the church, they're often, positively, they often have a role as, as guardians of the tradition. But what that often happens, and this is partly human nature, is that they almost become the exclusive bearers of uh, knowledge or interpreters of knowledge. So whether it's a, a bishop uh, passing a, a ruling in synod or a Bible teacher saying this is, this is the only way that we can interpret the text, there is something about um, church leadership who, by virtue of their sense of calling or vocation, feel that they have to be the ones to have the final say. And so it's the epistemic hubris is the, the combination of, um, uh, on the one hand, uh, clergy having a, a strong sense of calling uh, to lead and often using knowledge or knowledge becomes... Uh, the way in which that leadership is exercised. Um, ideally, with healthy leadership, that then the leader becomes a source of wisdom who uh, brings life and vitality to the life of the organisation. But what often happens is that the, the bearer of knowledge uh, under this uh, epistemic hubris becomes the keeper of secrets. And in a lot of church organisations, um, abuses of power as much from... Um, uh, secrecy or lack of transparency as they are from overt or explicit actions. Mm -hmm. Well, it's interesting. I mean, uh, one of the questions that arose to me, and I'll just go ahead and say that I am an American low church Protestant asking questions about Anglican things, uh, is this notion of the bishop as a sovereign exception. Uh, now, looking in, it seems that there are few figures in public life more tradition-bound and, you know, I guess unfree, if you'll, if you'll allow a barbarism there, than an Anglican bishop. So in what sense is that Anglican bishop an exception to these rules? Look, uh, in our system, uh, basically, the, it, the, the, the bishop in each diocese, in a sense, is... Uh, it, an independent uh, unit. Uh, mm -hmm. at, it, at its best, that means uh, that each diocese can be, uh, whether it's in New York or uh, Brisbane, can respond to local needs and, and interests. But at its worst, and under sovereign power, it can become uh, a, a miniature kingdom. In, in, in our, our tradition, then, for the bishop, the, that tradition... The tradition itself can be used as a justification for abuses of sovereign power. And uh, so, uh, along with other aspects to it, uh, the monarchical ceremonial and uh, other trappings, it can be very seductive. But, but likewise, I've worked with some uh, congregational churches or, or Protestant uh, churches, 
And there can be an aura, a similar kind of aura that surrounds the bishop around the the Bible teacher, the one who is uh, the chief pastor or the chief interpreter of the significance of the text. I mean, part of it is, it's not about leadership. Part of it is also about a culture of deference that occurs in the life of churches where lay people and clergy uh, relinquish autonomy or relinquish their own power to think, to engage, to interact. And in a sense, we create a, a, a cult of, uh, of sovereign power. Um, there's one uh, brilliant American political philosopher, Wendy Brown, who often talks about the fact that often we're frightened of freedom, we're frightened of democracy, and so uh, it's much easier for us to look for uh, sovereigns. So, so sometimes the problem is we get the leadership that we deserve. Mm-hmm. That's fair enough, and I, and I think that leads pretty naturally into another discussion that your book engages, uh, namely the notion of subject formation. So uh, one thing that Foucault escapes, and this is one thing I appreciate about his work, is a sort of conspiracy mindset that says that the bishops and the lords and the bankers or whoever you want to put in the bad guy role are somehow meeting in secret and planning how the world will work. Uh, It's a much more pervasive and it's a much more dialectical kind of power. So talk a little bit about how this subject formation process makes bishops bishops and laymen laymen. Look, I think that's a really important um, insight. Uh, very early into writing the book and using Foucault, it became evident that it's not, it's not a, it wasn't a case of finding a few bad eggs mm-hmm. in the, amongst the bishops or in the Methodist church or in the Baptist church. Uh, there's something about uh, the dynamic. The dynamic involves complex uh, power relations. Uh, classic Foucault is that we're all immersed in uh, power relations, and even the, the, the humblest or most marginalised layperson still has the opportunity to exercise power even if he or she uh, simply does an act of resistance and says, no, that is an exercise of power. So it is a much more uh, 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 nuanced understanding. And in that context then, too, um, just to, to repeat a phrase, it, it's not a case of the bad eggs. It's about a bad dynamic that takes place within mm-hmm. churches and congregations. And uh, in terms of subject formation, uh, culturally, so this is not just the church, there is a kind of, uh, particularly uh, amongst men, I think there is a gender issue here, there is a kind of lone hero uh, version of uh, leadership that emerges. Uh, one of my favourite American uh, philosophers, Richard Rorty, wrote in the 70s about the strong man. And in fact, he he warned about, I think he warned America about, be careful that one day the strong man may come to lead uh, our country and all sorts of uh, problems will ensue. So there is, I think, uh, culturally and socially in the West, this this de- desire or yearning for the strong man or the, the lone hero uh, uh, leadership. A uh, fantastic book came out of the States by Bonnie Mann under the title Sovereign Masculinity. And I think she captures that brilliantly, this this lone hero. So if we take that back into the context of the church, I think a lot of church leaders, in cases where there are abuses of power, I would say it's largely unwitting or inadvertent. It's, it's part of them feeling 
called by God to lead um, and often uh, mistakenly feeling that they are the exclusive bearers of wisdom or knowledge. And in a sense, they're formed that way. It's not like a rational decision that they make one night, but the combination of people in the church seeking strong leaders, uh, supporting them, uh, encouraging them to think that way. Um, in my own tradition, often bishops will encourage lay people just to refer to them by their Christian names. But it's amazing the number of times that lay people still uh, persist in addressing bishops with uh, the old terms, which really belong to uh, an English setting rather than an Australian one, like your grace or my Lord. So the leaders within the Anglican Church, and I suspect most churches, uh, uh, encouraged to think in a certain way that they are in fact the lone hero and it's up to them to make the tough decisions and uh, this is what relate, This is what, how Foucault would describe it in terms of subject formation, they have been formed this way, their, their subjectivity how they think of themselves and their role is shaped uh, within the life of the church to act in this way so in terms of changing the church, it's it's not a case of uh, blaming a few individuals. It's getting the church to think critically about the culture that creates this kind of um, subject formation. All right, very good. Uh, another phrase that really, I mean, this book holds it up to a, a pretty sustained critique uh, is love the sin or hate the sin. I, and that's one that honestly I thought was a pretty much an American phrase that didn't occur elsewhere in the world, and it might be that it is. You might tell me that here in a moment. But you hold it up as an example of harmful speech that emerges in that context of sovereign power. So how does that phrase relate to those power relations that you are criticizing? I think one of the things, I guess you could say it's the subplot or subtext in the book, is that if organisations, whether it's a university, hospital or a church, are not, are not healthy, that is, that aren't working, seeking to work in some kind of respectful and collaborative uh, manner, um, what often happens is that not only does sovereign power emerge, but part of the exercise of sovereign power in that context is to kind of make sure that everybody's on the same hymn sheet. Uh, there, in that setting, there's often a, a, a fear or discomfort with individuals or groups who, who think or act uh, differently. Uh, in the last uh, 10 or 15 years in the Anglican Church in Australia, there has been within the Anglican Church a rise of uh, Christian fundamentalism, and uh, some of their leaders are very uh, outspoken and uh, are demanding. And so what's taking place in the Australian Anglican Church is um, a movement towards unity, that we've, we, we have to uh, speak the same and act the same. Now, invariably what that means is that there's a whole range of minority groups based on gender or sexuality who don't fit into that. And uh, I've been at a number of our synods and I've heard, you know, the phrase, um, you know, I love the sin, I hate the sin. In that context where, for example, in that particular synod, there may, in fact, I'll rephrase that, there are gay and lesbian Anglicans in that forum. 
to use that kind of language, and it's it's very evocative, highly emotive language. To use that language in that forum uh, becomes um, an an aspect of uh, marginalisation. So it, it it pushes people who are different further and further to the edge. Now, where the sovereign power comes into it is that uh, often leadership, instead of uh, challenging uh, what I think are uh, abuses of power because of all sorts of anxieties and pressures becomes more concerned about uh, unity, even if that unity is like is like a veneer, becomes almost preoccupied about church unity uh, at the expense of diversity. And, uh, you know, if, the, if there are any stories that still resonate deeply with us from the gospel tradition, it's usually stories about Jesus uh, going out of his way to embrace those on the edge, the marginal. Uh, but ironically, under sovereign power, it's often the marginal who suffer. And I use that example of um, uh, hate speech as, as one of, of several examples of where, as, as the forces towards this sort of monochrome uh, unity continue unabated, it's marginal groups suffer, and it's often... It's often in our discourses, in our speech, in um, the, the phrases we use, uh, that that is exercised. So as a follow-up question to that, um, the church, I mean, still uses the discourse, I mean, because it is scriptural language, it is part of our liturgy of, yeah. of confessing sins, of the forgiveness of sins, of redemption from sins, of repentance from sins. How do you see those phrases relating to the love the sin or hate the sin? Because I, I, I shouldn't assume, but you know, I imagine that those are still part of the liturgy, but this particular iteration of that noun sinner and the noun sin is especially harmful. What, what differentiates those? What distinguishes them? Look, this, that's a big issue. I'm, I'm doing some work now on a book on uh, violence mm-hmm. and, uh, and ironically, it, it, it keeps forcing you back to some kind of anthropology, some, some, some sort of notion of sin. So, you know, the prevalence of uh, violence in the world, the, the uh, kind of pathological inclination towards violence raises deep questions about human nature. And it's making me re- revisit some sort of uh, notion of original sin. Mm-hmm. Uh, the problem in the life of the church is um, often what is presumed to be well. I'll, I'll rephrase that. Uh, it's often presumed what is what is sinful. I think there are some really important debates in relationship to gender and sexuality that need to take place in the Australian church, for example, uh, but aren't taking place, and they're being, or or if they are. The outcome is predetermined because notions of sin are not questioned or challenged. In other words, assumptions are made from the outset that, that predetermine the nature of um, uh, debates. In the Anglican Church within the liturgy, whilst uh, the, in, in our history, of course, there are antecedents, strong antecedents before the Reformation, during the Reformation, uh, language like um, uh, discipline, obedience, sin and sacrifice 
which reflect a range of 16th and 17th century issues and, and, and culture and values have crept into the Anglican and Episcopal uh, liturgies. Now, obviously, a number of uh, Anglican or Episcopal churches have have changed those liturgies in terms of context and time. But it is interesting, when I um, sit during an ordination service and the, the, the frequent use of language like discipline, uh, correct, obedience and sacrifice, now, I'm not saying there isn't a place for some of those uh, concepts, but in the liturgy, they come as a package. And and I think because it's unquestioned, that is often a, a destructive and, and divisive uh, package that doesn't speak not only to the first century Jesus, who includes those who are marginal, but doesn't speak to a lot of the contemporary ethical issues we're addressing today. Mm-hmm. All right, well... The shift from, you know, the expectations of the 16th century to the expectations of the 21st century uh, brings up another facet of Foucault's work, namely his strong question of his history as a sort of grand uh, progressive meta narrative. Now, the book's politics is, is recognizably progressive, at least in an American setting. Uh, so, in your mind, how does Foucault's critique of progressive history and the advocacy of progressive political positions, causes, whatever noun you want to use there, how do those things relate to each other? Okay. Um, You know, Foucault is often described as um, a philosopher who uses uh, history to get us to think about the present, to get us to look at the situation we are now in the 21st century and, and, and say... Essentially, how did we get here? Uh, now, sometimes his use of history, he's, he's been criticised. Uh, it's usually uh, finely detailed, copious amounts of information. But there would be some historians that would uh, critique his uh, use of history. But in a sense, he's, he's not, he wasn't primarily interested in being an historian per se. He was more interested in getting us to think about the present, which involve going back and looking aspects of our um, uh, history. Uh, so uh, if I took a, uh, an example now of, um, you know, the church, uh, there are trends in the church, and this is not just now the Anglican church, you only have to look at the Roman Catholic church and what's happened really since the Second Vatican Council, that beginning with John Paul II and then Benedict, there's been a gradually a gradual movement to the right and many of the great innovations and changes of the second vatican council have either been uh, rejected or marginalized so so uh, foucault would be asking uh, the sort of questions he would ask is well how did we get here because in in the 1960s the roman catholic church in many ways theologically liturgically and spiritually was leading the way so how do we get here Today, now, obviously, a lot of us uh, ecumenically are pinning our hopes on Francis, but there were the, you could argue that under John Paul II, there was the re-emergence of sovereign power, the re-emergence of making decisions for others, uh, the re-emergence of claiming uh, full knowledge or full ex- expertise. And likewise, I think the, that's paralleled in the uh, political uh, situation. 
Um, we have a, a senator here in Australia, Pauline Hanson, who in many ways uh, reflects the, uh, the traits and uh, behaviour patterns of uh, your president. Uh, in both cases, there's this not only move to the right in terms of uh, political values, but uh, the adoption of a more authoritarian or sovereign uh, style of leadership. Um, one of the things I assume in the book is really that the, that, that the gap between, you know, um, the church and state is not that big. And unless, unless the church is vigilant, then it's almost as though we revert to time. We, we revert to the secular patterns of behavior and uh, governance. And uh, the, the tensions that we see uh, historically, whether it goes back to, say, uh, the investiture contest and, and Gregory and Henry IV or uh, the Reformation and Henry VIII and the Pope, uh, the, the, the tensions over power and um, authority, um, they're the big issues. They're the issues that are taking place in the world. And that, that, in that sense, that's the default position of the church. And so the church, whether it's Catholic, Anglican, Orthodox or Protestant, Evangelical or Pentecostal, almost has to steel itself uh, to function uh, differently and to develop its own sense of uh, ethos and direction uh, and this has to be done every year. Um, ha I'm not sure if I answered the question well, let, in let terms me follow of history up. and politics. Yeah, yeah. let me follow up on a little bit because one of the critiques that I think uh, Foucault is, is rightly best known for is to say that, for instance, in the realm of prison reform, the move from, for instance, you know, the, the dungeon to the isolation chamber in the, you know, Quaker prisons of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Uh, mm. They imagine themselves as being very progressive, but in fact it was a lateral shift or even a regressive move because of certain realities they're overlooking. So, I mean, in that respect, I mean, do progressives receive a caution from Foucault uh, beyond simply the critique of the bishops? I think what progressives uh, – <laughs> I mean, the beauty of um, Foucault's critique is I think it's democratic. <laughs> Everyone is up for critique. And, uh, you know, um, if, we, if we pursue the, the label progressive, um, within the church it's a kind of loaded label. I tend not to use that of myself because uh, I think within the church – there is a progressive stream that in some ways um, is um, wrestling with some really important issues but is also reactionary. And um, I think in Foucauldian terms, it's important for the progressive Christian movement to do a kind of self-critique. Um, it's a bit like in family systems uh, therapy. We can, we can easily look for... Uh, uh, scapegoats or, or nasty parent figures uh, to blame. So uh, whilst the uh, progressive Christian movement has uh, much to contribute, Foucault would say, well, you've got to ask yourself, how did you get here? Look at your own history. Look at the, look at the, the, uh, uh, how not only what you say, but, but what, are, what are the drivers behind uh, your thinking? Um, Foucault is like a surgeon. He, 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 
he sort of with meticulously he makes incisions and and reveals the kind of inner workings of any organization so i think it's quite at that level i think it's quite healthy whether it is a conservative church or a progressive church or a progressive political uh, movement uh, foucault offers that sense of self-analysis so at one level foucault doesn't really make a judgment about a particular organization or institution other than take a hard look at yourself and about how you really work and how you really impact uh, people would be the, the kind of uh, Foucauldian ethos. All right. I want to turn back to uh, Sydney. Uh, you mentioned it earlier, and your discussion in the book of the Diocese of Sydney was very interesting to me as, as an American uh, because I had no idea before reading your book that in Sydney – Lay people were presiding over the Eucharist. Something resembling fundamentalism had become the intellectual framework of the parishes, and that Anglicans had otherwise started acting like evangelicals. That that was news to me. So here's my question sure. to an outsider. So explain to me because I I need I need some explaining. Uh, that kind of outbreak seems like the free movement of the people even in the face of institutional powers that Foucault would present as the alternative to sovereign power, but you describe it as an iteration of sovereign power. So how does that movement of the Sydney fundamentalists differ from the kind of free movement of the people that you advocate in this book? Look, um, one of the uh, difficulties is, um, is uh, the, the Australian Anglican Church is really a mixed lot. Australia is, uh, whilst we don't have the population of the United States, it's a big place and there's incredible uh, diversity. So a wonderful, the Diocese of Sydney, now Sydney, for, for our listeners, Sydney's a, a large, uh, uh, beautiful uh, uh, city of 5 million people, stunning place, incredibly uh, diverse city. And there's probably great diversity also within the diocese. But historically, there has been, as part of its history, uh, an an evangelical uh, tradition within the Diocese of Sydney, which has not necessarily been characteristic of the rest of the Australian church. And um, at one level, um, in keeping with my book, and this is what I think you've rightly picked up, at one level, um, you know, uh, I'm one to encourage the sharing of empower, a power, the empowering of uh, uh, clergy and lay people, uh, working collaboratively, open. Um, but that doesn't uh, remove uh, other issues in terms of uh, question of identity and question of tradition. So whilst... Um, you know, I'm not saying lay presidency is widespread in the Diocese of Sydney, but it is happening. Whilst at one level that is, you might argue, oh, that's a terrific, that's, um, uh, that's an exercise of their freedom, an exercise of their power. In terms of the history and identity of Anglicanism, it represents a uh, dramatic departure. Now, whether that departure is a good or bad thing, the issue that I would raise is that the way that's come about by presidency in Sydney and you know, I don't live there, so I'm, I'm on. Um, uh, I'm being cautious here, but the way that's emerged, it hasn't gone through uh, channels of debate and discussion about what it means to be Anglican in the 21st century. In other words, 
part of the process of uh, collaboration and empowerment means also uh, open processes of negotiation where uh, different Anglicans of all persuasions get together and in good faith and with goodwill uh, discuss issues and together they uh, work out uh, you know, what it means to be Anglican in the 21st century. Now, the instances that I'm referring to have been, you could argue, uh, 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 aberrant or almost road behaviour. It's, it's a bit like, well, we don't like what's happening. We're just going to go off and, without negotiation or uh, working together uh, collaboratively, we're just going to go do our own thing. So even before we get to the issue of... Um, the place of lay presidency within the life of the Anglican or Episcopal Church, which I think is a huge issue in terms of our history and identity. My first concern would be, how, how did that come about, and what are the what are the processes? Because if if there's a refusal to engage with others, then that refusal, rather than um, uh, you know a wonderful or, or romantic act of resistance, that can also be in fact, just another exercise of sovereign power, act, acting unilaterally without consideration for others within the community. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, as I'm hearing you, and again, I'm trying to make sure that I've got something like an understanding of this, um, you know, the local parish in Sydney deciding unilaterally that, again, lay presidency is something they're just going to institute is one excess, you know, the sort of, unreflective obedience to institutional hierarchical uh, power is another excess. What is the third way that you're imagining that would be the good way to live with both tradition and with consensus? Well, the, the, <clears throat> there's, a, there's a simple solution. It's just hard to put into practice, and that is really about genuine engagement. Um, you know, typically what happens in Australia, but you know, we 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 operate in silos. And uh, in in the Anglican tradition, as as the Episcopal Church in the United States, the diocese is the basic unit, not not the parish. So each each diocese develops its own um, flavour or style or um, ethos. Now, at a national level, uh, where a lot of these issues play out, we we really haven't. Uh, I think, worked out a way of dealing with complex issues. Uh, and in the Australian setting, the, the two most uh, complex and polemical issues revolve around things ranging from sexuality to things like uh, lay presidency. So the issue us then, for us then is to find uh, processes in which we can have uh, genuine and mutual engagement across uh, our big country, across the diversity within the church. Um, unfortunately, the, the processes that we've inherited and that we use when we talk about meeting in synod, uh, which we've inherited really through the Westminster system, uh, essentially adversarial or parliamentary uh, processes. And in some ways, that's good for dealing with certain uh, legislative issues, it's very practical, but for complex, nuanced issues about um, identity and ethos and theology, uh, those structures are actually um, often divisive. So my concern, and this is this is a perennial human concern, 
outside the church. Um, as you know, in, in philosophy and political philosophy now, there uh, there's a lot of work being done on about the, the diminishment of democracy, the loss of democracy, the loss of engagement. So the issue, I think, for the church, uh, Anglican, Catholic, Pentecostal, is, is really about rediscovering uh, processes of engagement. And that's where, in the final chapters of the book, I, I pick up this image from Foucault, uh, the space of freedom and apply it to uh, the nature of the church, that the church ought to be a space of freedom where people can uh, come together and engage. My my concern about the examples you've given is really the lack of engagement. Okay. And we're going to turn and I, pretty soon to the constructive alternative that you propose to that sovereign power. But before we do, um, I want you to translate your thought a little bit. So, how would your critique change or would it change if you were addressing not the Anglican communion in Australia, which has bishops and diocesan authority and so on and so forth, but instead you were addressing American evangelical churches where preachers are often treated as hirelings to be disposed of as soon as they displease the wealthy among the congregation. And just in case you wonder, listeners or, you know, Dr. Ogden, uh, I am one of those American ex-preachers who was disposed of very quickly. So, uh, so does that critique change in that kind of a context where the preacher is the precarious figure? Look, I think the two things. One, first of all, um, I'd be cautious because whilst I've spent a bit of time in the States, you know, I'm not an American, and so I have to be careful about making judgments about a different culture. But but uh, one of the issues related to uh, sovereign power is that it's, it's not just the leaders, and there have been a number of uh, instances in the Australian Anglican Church where lay people, or what we call wardens who are lay leaders, uh, they've been the bearers of sovereign power. They've been the ones who've acted in an authoritarian uh, manner. And so uh, this goes back to something we said earlier. The, the issue is not about necessarily uh, the, the, the abuse of power, the use of sovereign power is not necessarily uh, parallel or a reflection of the formal or official power. Um, and um, what it often takes then is, and this is very Foucauldian, is whether it's a, a hierarchical church in the Catholic tradition like Anglicanism or in Australia or a uh, congregational church in the United States in both instances, in, in Foucauldian terms, there needs to be this kind of um, uh, deep surgery, this this uh, dissecting and analysing what really goes on, because, uh, you know, there are a lot of clergy who have been um, be beaten up <laughs> and, and rejected by congregations with impunity, and those congregations have continued on uh, uh, behaving um, in a sovereign power manner pathologically. In other words, in other words, unless that congregation actually does that kind of Foucauldian self-critique, it will continue to, um, you know, uh, eat up, chew and spit out uh, clergy um, at a rate of knots. So I, I think Whilst the context is very different, the, the issue of a kind of uh, courageous and transparent uh, self-critique 
is absolutely uh, critical for uh, all churches. There was a very good book written in the States uh, in 2005, God, Sex and Politics by Dawn Moon. And she did um, an ethnographic study of two uh, United Methodist churches in the United States. And the conclusion she came up with, whilst it's a different uh, process and style, were not dissimilar uh, observations and conclusions as my own of the Anglican Church in Australia. In other words, something, something of this is about human nature. It's about how human beings work together in groups and about the emergence of certain uh, patterns of uh, leadership. All right. Well, I want to turn to this alternative imagination. Uh, and the way that you begin this is with a discussion of the Greek noun ekklesia, uh, which English monks somewhere decided that they would translate as church. But you want to return to its Athenian roots. So why is ekklesia so important for contemporary Christians? Look, I think uh, for two reasons. I think uh, uh, my own bias is that the church ought to be engaged in uh, the wider political discussions, that um, we're, we're not meant to be um, hiding away. We're meant to be in the marketplace. So I have a personal interest in uh, engagement and uh, in the wider marketplace in uh, politics and political philosophy there are really significant debates going on about the nature of democracy and what is, what's happening to it. And so I have a personal interest in uh, those kind of issues. And uh, without romanticising it too much, some of the concepts from uh, you know, the democracy of Athens in the 5th and 6th century BC are, are very appealing. Now, of course, we know, too, that that, that democracy was very limited to largely... Uh, uh, male aristocratic uh, classes. Uh, but in essence, and Foucault was attracted to this, there's something about uh, Ecclesia as an open space in which uh, people theoretically as equals come and that they can speak the truth uh, is, uh, I think, remarkably uh, powerful. And, um, you know, an extraordinary uh, New Testament scholar like Elizabeth uh, Schuschler-Fiorenza has taken up the notion of ecclesia and given it, given it a feminist uh, nuance very effectively. But before we get to the contemporary context, I mean, uh, I think it's remarkable that it's this concept, which was uh, essentially a political concept, is the concept that the Apostle Paul takes up to describe the nature of the church. So... Paul doesn't describe the church in 19th century English Gothic terms, but in terms of a, of a kind of space or realm of openness and uh, inclusion. And you know, the classic example of that, I think, is in uh, Paul's letter to the Galatians, where uh, it's quite obvious that the Galatians, these uh, Celtic barbarians, uh, were really... Um, uh, problematic, but not for Paul. In his concept of the church, uh, which I think is very much this open space, this this open ecclesia, uh, the issue is not so much as um, uh, who's out. There's a sense in Paul, at least in Galatians, that everyone's in, uh, really. So, so in a, in ecclesia, uh, whilst there needs to be some kind of debate about uh, boundaries the boundaries seem to be more flexible or, or, or porous. I, I really haven't come up with the right descriptors yet, but 
so there's definition. There's a sense of identity, but there's a there's a greater openness and flexibility to allow all shapes and sizes to belong in that open space. The open space too is 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 it's not just simply a, a a bland or neutral space. It's a space of engagement, and so. Um, the tradition in the the ecclesia of speaking the truth or fearless speech uh, is also something that the church uh, needs to learn. Um, within the Anglican tradition, um, we often don't speak transparently because there's this veneer of what um, myself and others have called Anglican politeness. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not I'm not I'm not saying that we should be rude or, or vulgar or, or hurtful, but we need to speak the truth with love. All right. Well, another uh, concept that you bring up, again, from the corpus of Foucault to talk about possibilities for the church uh, have to do with utopic and heterotopic space. So how might the church benefit from imagining the ecclesia as a heterotropic space? Um, This is an interesting area, and in some ways it's an area that I'd like to uh, pursue a bit more. you know, I've been reading uh, Foucault for a number of years, and then all of a sudden, I started to note that he 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 um, looks at things spatially. Has a you know the the space in which we live and breathe and move is really important uh, for him. And um, it was Deleuze who, who, in a, a gem of a little book, which came out eighty six or eighty eight, uh, who articulates this brilliantly that that. It's not just what Foucault says. It's not just his discourses. It's the way Foucault sees things. And he sees there's the prison space, the hospital space, the space of um, uh, the asylum. And um, unfortunately, so, so this, this spatial way of operating, which has now been taken up and developed in areas as diverse as geography and architecture, and, and partly due to Foucault's uh, influence, Unfortunately, Foucault doesn't go into great detail about it. It's, it's tantalising, and there are a few uh, short articles and interviews where he talks about um, this spatial praxis. But I do think it's an area worth pursuing. And um, in particular, he has, um, in, one, uh, in a couple of articles where he talks about space, he has this notion of um, a heterotopic space or, or an other or different space. And this is, you know, for those who read Foucault now and then, he's so creative and, and now and then he throws these tantalising things out but doesn't give all the detail. And this is, a, this is a classic one. And a heterotopic space is a kind of a space. It can be in a community. It can be in an organisation. And... and it's it's part of the institution. It's it's part of um, the society. But on the other hand, it isn't. It doesn't quite fit in, and um, it's a kind of um, uh, a boundary or marginal space. Now, historically, uh, particularly in Australia, the church, whether it was Anglican, Catholic, or Protestant, was a central institution in the life of the church. And uh, since World War Two. Increasingly in Australian life, the church as an institution has become more and more uh, marginal. But I would argue that that's a plus, uh, really, because there, there, there was a price to be uh, inveigled by uh, wider sectors of society 
I think there's a price to pay. And um, in a sense, we're, we're called to be a, a kind of boundary institution or to use Foucault's terms, a heterotropic space. That is, we're part of society, we, we overlap, we're, we're, we're bound. But on the other hand, we're not. We're, we're kind of different. We're kind of other. Now, um, there's one particular essay of uh, Foucault where he goes into this a uh, little bit, but, but it, 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 it raises in many ways more questions than it answers, other than to say that the shift from thinking about church as building to space, which I think is very ancient, and I think this is what the Apostle Paul was picking up, I think is a very creative way of thinking about uh, the church in the West, where as an institution we have become marginalised, so, so let's divest ourselves, I'm not saying get rid of them, but let's divest ourselves of commitment in neo-Gothic buildings and practices and reinvest ourselves in finding uh, new and creative alternatives of being in the world and in the marketplace. And that's where um, Foucault's spatial approach, I think, is very creative. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting. I mean, this vision that you're presenting is ecclesia, so it's very engaged, it's very democratic. It's heterotropic, so it is neither the space of authority nor entirely outside of the realm of discourse. And one other set of criteria that you bring forth, it is simultaneously diachronic and synchronic in its authority. So talk about that. How does a church authority operate as part of you know, what my church history class taught me to call apostolic succession, but also seeks some kind of consensus? Are both of those possible in the same place? Well, you know, for all uh, first-year theological students, uh, after a while they get sick of lecturers saying it's a case of holding things in tension. And I think that's 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 the reality of human existence, that uh, whether it's a church or a, or a nation, there are complexities, contingencies, ambiguities, uh, discontinuities, all sorts of things. And, um, you know, I think uh, churches, whether it's a... Uh, you know, uh, a small congregation or a, or, or a large diocese has all those kind of complexities within it. So th- there's not going to be um, a template or a simple answer to it. But I do think there are important ingredients, and this is what I refer to as the diachronic and the synchronic. So in um, uh, my own tradition, the the, the diachronic, uh, which is uh, you know classically uh, uh, presented in this notion of apostolic succession. Uh, symbolically, as a reminder that our roots, you know, go back to our theological roots, go back to the first century. That that in terms of our history and identity, we are recipients of a, a heritage and tradition. Uh, it tells us something about who we are. However, uh, we're also called to be in the world and to be engaged and and. Uh, one of the dangers in my tradition is that we become so focused on the diachronic and in particular those who, the symbolic bearers of diachronic, uh, the diachronic traditions, the, the, uh, the traditions per se, that we lose touch or connection with that sense of the synchronic, that we, are, we not only are accountable to our congregations, to our clergy and lady, but we're kind of accountable to the world. So I don't think there's an easy uh, solution other than, uh, it's an old-fashioned word, there's a kind of discipline about trying to hold those things in tension. And uh, that's where you need those 
um, those spaces of open freedom that foster engagement so that things can be uh, tested and, and, and things can be brought to bear so that we don't become complacent. Well, very good. Uh, I've been at the wheel for most of this conversation, so in the spirit of hospitality and trying to break away from the sovereign power of the podcast host, I want you to have the last word here. So what do you want our listeners thinking about Foucault, authority, hubris, or whatever else as we wrap up this podcast? Oh, that's a good question. <clears throat> Look, um, can I say something quite sentimental here? And that is, um, you know, I've had incredibly positive experiences in the life of the church. And I often say to my colleagues, you know, thank God for the laity because um, I, I've met the most um, uh, remarkable people who have been uh, gracious and, uh, and, and just big-hearted towards me and, and, and encourage me. So I do have a strong sense of kind of um, uh, commitment to the people who have shaped my life, who have positively influenced, I hope, my subject uh, uh, formation. And in a sense, what Foucault does is Foucault is a kind of a key. Look, Foucault doesn't have all the answers. And in my book, you know, I, I critique uh, Foucault's uh, method and approach so I'm not presenting Foucault as the, you know, the panacea for all the, all that ails the, uh, the church. But there is something, and I think your questions have rightly honed in on this. There is something about uh, Foucault's critique, the way that he analyzes things, which I think is actually life-giving. In other words, it, it, it's not a destructive process, but it, it frees us up and it frees organizations to be the, the, the kind of organizations we're meant to be. And so when I think of that wonderful uh, group of people in, in my uh, memory, in my past, in the community I'm in now, who have shaped my life, I, I feel a sense of obligation to them to be, in a sense, uh, Foucauldian, that, that uh, what I see as the, the prophetic critique, the 21st century post-structural prophetic critique that Foucault offers is in fact life-giving and, in a sense, honours the best of the church, uh, and can, and arguably can take us into the into the next few decades in a more creative manner. Dr. Stephen Ogden, thank you for coming on Christian Humanist Profiles. Thanks very much for having. Uh, it's been great. Great to talk to you, Nathan. Thank you, listeners. I thank you for downloading and for listening in the Christian Humanist Radio Network is the home of Christian Humanist Profiles and several other wonderful shows. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our audio editor is Britt Stack. And I am Nathan Gilmore saying, go in grace, go in peace, serve the Lord.